Thank you, Priscilla, and good morning, El Paso Bible Church. Morning, good morning to you here and there. Hopefully, when you walked in today, you uh, have received a uh, bulletin, so you know the activities uh, of the church. But I need to highlight a couple. First and foremost, probably is uh, uh, our upcoming Christmas dinner, a Christmas party for the youth today. And uh, our dinner is uh, next week, 6 to 8 p.m. in the evening. All right, so sign-up sheet. We're pretty bad at signing up <laughs> as, as a group, my friends, my brothers and sisters. We're pretty bad at that. So, uh, well, there's a culprit who is confessing to uh, <laughs> not, not signing up. Anyway. Uh, please sign up so that we have an idea. Uh, typically, we decorate uh, uh, tables. Uh, so you'll need to sign up, pick a table, and then uh, get here early enough to decorate it. All right. Other things, uh, the youth are having their Christmas party today. So they get two. And we only get one. Okay. And uh, the women's Bible studies are on break. The youth Bible study is... Uh, the young adults, I'm sorry, not youth, young adults, is Saturday at 6 o'clock. Through the holidays, Micah, or just when do you end? Okay. Well, to be, to be announced, to, to be determined, as we say, yes. Okay, I want to highlight also that we have uh, uh, a nursery that you can uh, bring your kids to and uh, leave them in our nursery. Um, Sunday school starts at uh, 9.30 and we have classes for the, the kids and the adults, so for those of you who haven't availed yourself of those, you can do those online like Janice and I did this morning. Listen to Josh croak through with the, uh, the, uh, the lesson. Let me read one thing. I, this week I, I do a daily devotional, and here's a, uh, here's a prayer that it gave me. Let me read this just real quick. Lord, you are a good, good God. Thank you for loving me, us, in a way that we do not deserve. Amen. We pray today, Lord, that you would uh, help us feel your love, 
Help us experience the overwhelming goodness of your presence in our life. Help us to love you without hindrance or distraction. That's uh, dist without distraction is, uh, is a bit of a challenge these days. Help us to find satisfaction in you, first of all, and to be tethered to your love and your purpose for our lives. Thank you for the gifts that you give us, the relationships that we have, and you constantly use us to make us more holy. Thank you for the process of becoming more like you and for the gift of getting love and giving love to those around us, to our brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord. Now let's pray together, then we'll sing together, and then we'll worship in the Word together. Let me read, let me read first. I forgot to read our actual scripture today in, uh, in uh, the book of John. Uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, 17 through 11. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of whom, what man, what man is there of you whom if his son asks bread, he will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? lost it. There we go. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to us that ask him? Blessed be the reading of his word. Now we'll pray together. Father, I do thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunities that we have here together as believers, some sick, some not well, some unhealthy, for all of us, Lord, we do pray that you would bless this service. Guide us and direct us as we uh, worship this day. We worship you, your son Jesus, through your Holy Spirit. In these things, we ask your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us, church? Savior say, thy strength indeed is strong. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe.
ransom captive
shall come again with us to dwell. You may be seated. It turned off instead of turning on. Uh, children, you guys can go to children's church. Uh, <clears throat> there they go. You can tell. I sound to myself like I'm speaking in a shower. Um, so I'm hoping that I sound worse inside my own head than I do to y'all. Um, but it's hard to tell, right? Hard to be subjective about this. It's subjective determination. Uh, but I figured it's still probably better than giving somebody else a heart attack at 6 o'clock on Saturday night, right? Which would be what's at risk when I call them and say, hey, can you preach tomorrow? Right? Um, so I don't want to do that to anybody. Um, so we'll go on. I, uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I just sound uh, like I'm a little underwater. And uh, so we'll carry on here. Uh, but Welcome. And uh, glad that you're here with us today. I know that we have a, a good number of folks that are uh, traveling still and out with the same thing that I'm not out with uh, currently. But uh, I want to pray together before we begin, uh, given the nature of that and uh, of the season and of the things that are going on in the world. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day, and we do thank you for your grace to us. Uh, we thank you that you love us with this great love that you, we have been called, those of us who believe in you uh, and have eternal life, that we have been called children of God, and John tells us such we are, and we thank you for that reality, the thing that drives us this morning and every day, that gets us out of bed on the worst days and the best days, Father, that serves as our motivation. Uh, Father, we just pray for your hand of healing on those who need it. Uh, Father, we, we know uh, that, that is all you every time, Father. You use different means and different instruments uh, and different functions, but Father, we thank you for your grace in people's lives to provide them with healing. And Father, we love you, and we pray that you bless our time in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we are in, uh, in 1 John, um, and some people are probably wondering, some people may not even know what this thing is, right? If you grew up uh, in certain church traditions, you may not know what an Advent wreath is. Uh, other people who know what it is um, are probably like, well, why aren't you preaching that Advent series, Pastor Josh? And uh, I have two answers. Advent is uh, not a Bible thing necessarily, but it's within the permissive part of the Bible that allows us to identify things and that we should focus on theme-wise. Um, and Advent is when we look towards the coming of Christ. It is not a remembrance of the first advent, although we are preparing to recognize that. It's actually a time of focusing on the second coming of Christ and the motivation that that provides for us. Um, and so each of these Sundays represented by these candles focuses, in theory, on a, on a theme. So I want to see if you recognize the themes out of First John. Because my answer is we are doing an Advent series out of 1 John. There is hope, joy, love, and expectation. Right, so what have we been talking about in 1 John? We've been talking about having fellowship one with another with 
the apostles whose fellowship is with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might have fullness of joy, right? So that we can have fellowship with each other, so that when we stand before Jesus Christ at the Bema, we are not among those who shrink away. We have expectation. We have hope in that future because we are children of God, and such we are. And love, right? Love for each other that is an extension of God's love for each of His children. Uh, So, if you've been wondering why I haven't been preaching an Advent sermon, just think about it in those terms, right? Those are the Advent themes that we have been covering out of 1 John for months now. So, actually what we've been doing is having an extended Advent all the way from the beginning of 1 John, in a manner of speaking. But remember that the goal here in 1 John is that we would have a fullness of joy. And I I don't mind reiterating that until you get kind of sick of it, to be honest, because I feel the need to do that for myself, to know that God has provided for me in this life to experience a fullness of joy, and the church is a part of that. The fellowship is a part of that. Now, you don't, don't raise your hand here, but I know that you have been irritated by church in your life. Have you been a Christian for more than five minutes? Yeah? Don't raise your hand, but y'all are all going to agree with me, right? You've been a little irritated. You may have said, how am I supposed to get joy out of this thing at different times? I would let you know a little secret. Pastors feel that too sometimes. How do you feel? How do you get joy out of this thing? He tells us, right, the key is that the fellowship is not only lateral, though some people will tell you that, that this is lateral. It is, in a sense, triangular. I have fellowship with others because I have fellowship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. That it is not something that I am responsible for producing, but it is something that I am responsible for pursuing in my life, and that I can have the fullness of joy that God has provided for me to have so that we can live together as the children of God that we are as a family, and that can be enjoyable. Yeah? You don't get to choose your family, but you can choose who to hang out with at the birthday parties, right? Right? Supposed to make it joyful and enjoyable for everyone to have fellowship with each other, and that's what we're after here. And there is some mention, right, of people who didn't belong, very momentary, actually, of those who went out from us. They went out from us, he says, for the purpose that they would be known, that, it's not, that they were not of us. But it's important that we understand that there's a distinction there, right, that, that the, the material of 1 John is intent on identifying the brethren that we have in the church so that we can know where our obligation of love lies. That's the main goal here. There's only, that's the only mention of people that I would identify as unbelievers in this whole book. Remember that that that's important uh, because we, we key to our understanding, central to the understanding of 1 John, uh, and one that you will find is not common, actually. I have a, a good number of commentaries on uh, on 1 John, and few of them understand this difference. And that is that an unbeliever can hate a believer. 
Yes? Are you hated by the world? Do not be surprised if the world hates you, brethren. Stop being surprised by that. An unbeliever can hate a believer, but an unbeliever cannot hate his brother. In a sense, maybe even an unbeliever can love a believer, but an unbeliever cannot love his brother. But everyone here in 1 John has an obligation to love his brother and not hate them. Right? So that is a central principle in 1 John that the the instruction here is not to distinguish between people who have brothers and don't have brothers. It's between people who are treating their brother the way that Jesus wants you to treat them and people who aren't. But they have the same brothers. They're in the same family. Uh, That's important because there are some unpleasant characterizations of believers in 1 John, aren't there? Yes? Some pretty harsh words for people who hate their brother or who treat them poorly, who withhold the world's goods from a brother in need. John does not mince words from that. And and as believers reading the New Testament, we do not like that. We do not like that, do we? We don't like it when Paul says to the Galatians, you fools, you bewitched morons. Those are not unbelievers, by the way. Those are believers. Children of the devil, you people who are obeying the devil when you hate your brother. When you hate your brother, you are no better than a murderer. It is important that we understand the truth of what John is indicating, that those are believers who have brothers, that define their obligation, define their accountability for how they treat their brother. In my lifetime, I can't count the number of times I've had people look at me and say, Josh, you just can't say that because I've always been that guy. I've been that guy. You know why I've been that guy? Largely because of the example here. John is that guy. You want to hate your brother? Okay, children of the devil. Stop that crap. Do something different. You have power and resources and abilities that go beyond that. You don't have to serve that master, so stop it. John's that guy. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that this is, at every point, distinguishing between those who are actual believers, actual justified people, and those who simply claim that. There are, no, there are no illegitimate children in 1 John. There are no professing brothers in 1 John. There are children and there are brothers. That is all, except for the ones that went out, right? But all of those you have an obligation in relationship are your brothers. Verse 18 says this. This is where we are. That was kind of a a review. Again, there's no illegitimate children in 1 John. That's important when we read verse 18. Little children. Little children. What do you know about little children? 
We ju- they just all left. Y'all can talk about them. Do little children always know everything they need to do? No? Do they always do it even if they know? I mean, adults are like that. I can tell an adult, no, you need to not do that. And then off they go and do it. No, they don't always do that. They have things to learn. They have maturity that they need to obtain. And maturity is dependent on understanding what needs to be done. So he's going to tell them that. Verse 18, little children, let us, cohortative command here, let us not love with logos or with tongue. Logos is the kind of the, the thought life, I think, the words that you have in your head, right? And glossa is the tongue. And it's a cohortative. So John's including himself. That's what a cohortative is, saying that I also need this imperative. I also need this command. John was liable to make the mistake of loving improperly with only the thoughts in his head and the words of his mouth. And that's not love. Let us not do that. We're tempted because you can make a mistake in what you do. You ever made a mistake when you were trying to be loving towards someone? Only about three of you. I'm glad the rest of you all are even keeled, pretty good, pretty solid. With your intention, right? So it's safe. Thoughts and prayers, right? All thoughts and prayers for you. Let us know if you need anything. That's another one. Well-intentioned. But you can't make a mistake with that, can you? Yeah? The ball is in their court. The monkey is on their back, right? That's not your problem anymore. You said the right things. You even thought the right things. But you take no risk. Take no risk. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in works. <gasps> we teach grace here, Pastor Josh. We don't even say works at El Paso Bible Church unless we damn them as heresy. Let us not love in word or tongue, but rather in works or deeds. That's what deeds means, by the way. That's your, the, the thing that you do in truth. Now, what we ought not to do is we ought not to try to insert works into things that it doesn't do. Works doesn't justify you, does it? Doesn't do that. Only grace through faith does that. But love is intimately connected with deeds and works, right? Can you trust in Jesus Christ and not love Jesus Christ? Yeah, you could. You could do that. Jesus says to believers, his disciples, who are ready to defend him to the death, 
if you love me, keep my commandments. Do the works that are loving. Fix a lot of problems with people's theology if they understand what faith does and what love is. Let us love in deeds and truth, in works and truth. Honestly assess the situation of what is needed and behave appropriately. I mean, like I said, we don't like to say the word works. But all too often, and let's be honest, we expect words to do what works are necessary to accomplish, don't we? How many times have you told somebody, my thoughts and prayers are with you, and you never give it a second thought and never even a prayer? Ouch, right? And that's pretty low bar, isn't it? That's not my house and car are with you, right? That's a kind of a tall order, my house and car are with you. But even when we say my thoughts and prayers are with you frequently, we don't give it a second thought or even a single prayer. It's simply like predictive text on your phone for Christians, right? A lot of times. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just, I'm saying we, we I was a cohortative, wasn't it? We can do that. We can't expect words to do when works are necessary. And in order for us to do that, he says works, deeds, and truth. Understand, truth is is something that accurately reflects reality. So truth is not that common, right? You, you can watch any number of newscasts today that will tell you we are not in a recession. Anybody believe that? Does that accurately reflect reality? No, it doesn't. That's not truth. Gas prices are down. Really? From when? from yesterday. Truth is not common. We need to be able to honestly and accurately use words that reflect our actual circumstance so that we can work in the ways that are loving towards what's actually needed. And we tend to not be honest with each other about what we need. Because we worship, we worship independence and self-sufficiency a lot. I know y'all are all glaring at me now because you think that I am the primary guy that worships independence and self-sufficiency, and you're not wrong. I am tempted to. Sorely tempted to. Of course, there's a difference between thinking that independence is valuable from the government, right? But you were not intended to live independent of the body of Christ, right? That's the context here. 
We are to love each other, and not merely with thoughts and prayers, but in works that are honest and true. We need to be honest about our, our failures and our mistakes. Our successes are in there too. Because those things create the context in which the need has to be addressed that we're asking people to sacrificially work towards. It's a dynamic that we can't do without. We will know by this, verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now, to be honest, out of all the verses, I, I read Greek pretty well. Um, I have been studying Greek since I was 14 years old, formally, uh, various places. This is a hard verse to translate, exactly what it means. One of the harder ones, I think, in the New Testament. But in this context, we need, well, let's just take it a little bit at a time. We will know, right? We know what knowing is. It is also not the same thing as trusting, right? Trusting initiates a relationship. Knowing builds the relationship. We've used the illustration of how a marriage works. Yes? The men get uncomfortable whenever I use this illustration because they're not sure what they're going to have to pay for when they get home. They nod their head at the wrong spot, right? Um, but when you married, you're what? Priscilla and I dated for, and were engaged for five years before we got married. We knew each other better than most people, let's just say. Uh, I met Priscilla probably four days before her 13th birthday, I think. Are you still 12? Think of that party. Yeah, something like that. I was only a little bit older. We went to school together 40 hours a week for multiple years before we started dating, and then we were together for five years when we got married. I mean, I knew Priscilla pretty well. A little bitty bit that I've known in nearly 23 years of actually being married is what it ended up being. All good stuff. I'm not saying that, that I was surprised and horrified and everything, but the knowledge simply, right? The day you get married, folks, you don't know anything, hardly. You're entering into a trust relationship. You're entering trusting someone's motivations, someone's character, someone's personality. You don't know. You don't know empirically. And this is what makes people be engaged for 17 years. You all have a friend like that? Don't be that friend, folks. If you're two grown-ups and you're engaged for 17 years, one or both of you are lying to yourselves. That's just how it is. Got to make a decision to trust or not to. What John is talking about is the process of knowing, not trusting. You, you have a relation. You become a child of God simply by trust. You're adopted in a family. By grace, through faith, that day, but through your life, you come to know things about yourself and about Jesus Christ experientially, and that is what the knowledge is here that we're talking about. We will know this. 
You are not designed to know it the very day you are justified. You come to know it as you walk in fellowship with Christ, with God, and with others. And you know these things that way by experience, that we are of the truth, just like everywhere else in 1 John when he says you're of that, means that you are submitting to this authority, this power structure. If a believer hates his brother, that's what the the chief murderer and chief hater wants him to do, so he's a child of the devil when he does that. That's the authority he's obeying. Here, he says, you know this, that you're being obedient, submitting to, under the authority and the power of truth when you do these things. When you love, not in thoughts or words, but in works and truth. We're availing ourselves of the power of the truth, and we can know that. When we love our brothers, we are agreeing with that actual fact of who we are, the truth, the accurate representation of the reality of our lives. And we're fulfilling our true obligations, our true debts to our brothers, and we can know that. That's a positive, right? Knowing things instead of wondering about or presuming, assuming. Some people are more sensitive to this question than others in their lives. Some people, it seems strange to me, but some people never sit back and go, am I doing this right? No, some people are like that. I am not like that. Some people accuse me of being like that. You just act like you know everything all the time, Josh. Uh-uh. I'm a, I'm a massive overthinker. Massive. Experience has beaten some of it out of me. But some people don't act like, I mean, they never even give a second thought to what they did. Maybe they leave abundance and blessing in their path. Maybe they leave carnage, but they don't care. They don't even look at it, don't even think about it. So they may not understand that what this is getting at as easily. I mean, some people should think a little longer and a little harder about what they're doing and how it's affecting people's lives. Is it doing what Jesus wants us to do in relationship with each other and fellowship with each other as we live our lives in the body of Christ as God's children? But on the flip side, there are people like me. I always get in trouble when I say, and maybe you're like me, because everyone's like, oh, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not like you, Josh. You be weird, man. You're weird from the inside out, and you're not wrong, but so are y'all are all weird. You know what I mean? Y'all are sitting here in church. You know how unique that makes you? Everybody's weird. That's why I use the word non-standard, because nobody likes to hear that. I'm non-standard. Maybe you're non-standard in a similar way to me. Sometimes you agonize, agonize over whether you have done the right thing. To the point that it's nearly crippling.
Sometimes you can get to the point where you think, I've never done the right thing. And your heart condemns you. Parents have this problem sometimes. I had a friend recently say something like, getting frustrated with her experience. I think they had 10 kids. Um, nobody here locally, somebody from my, a family friend from many years ago. And uh, they were like, boy, this feels like the definition of insanity. I keep doing this over and over and over, and they keep doing the same thing over and over and over. I just had to remind them, like, listen, parenting is a long haul. It is a long haul. And you don't get to do it over again. So you don't have to worry about the saying, right? Because that's what she was invoking. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting this different results is insanity. This may not be encouraging to you, but you only get one shot whether you were crazy or not. You only get one shot. So don't agonize over that particular saying relative to parenting. You have to walk with the Lord and trust the Lord, right? Or your heart will condemn you. And what John is saying is this. If you are loving your brother, not just in your head or with your words, but you are loving them in honest works, loving them with deeds and truth, your heart should not condemn you. God is greater. He understands. He knows the motivations that you have in doing that. You don't get a chance to go back and do it again, do you? That's not life. My video games are rough for people, right? How many times can you respawn when you get killed, when you get shot in the head in a video game? It's unlimited, right? Because that's part of the dopamine drop. That's part of the endorphins. That's what keeps you playing, and that's what keeps you buying the next one. You'll constantly have that carrot in front of you. Guys, how often do you get to respawn if you get shot in the head in real life? Zero. Many, most of life's major important decisions are of a similar nature. You don't get to go back and redo it. You don't get to go back and undo the consequences of what you did either, do you? No? You have to walk with the Lord. Today, love, not with thoughts, thoughts and prayers, but in works and truth. Today, and God is greater, and our hearts will not be condemned if we can understand that. And we can know this moment, this day, that we are of the truth. And if we've been agonizing over things, John says that you can have relief from that because God is greater. Whatever our hearts condemn us, He's greater than our heart and He knows all things. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart 
does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We don't have to question everything, right? We know innately sometimes what is the right thing and what's not the right thing. But we don't have to please anyone else. We're pleasing, we live our lives to please God in deeds and in truth and works in truth. And we know that God knows everything about why and how we did it. We have confidence. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, confidence is not the sole purview of the wise, is it? How many confident fools do you know? That's almost the definition of a fool, right? Somebody who's very, very confident with very little rationale behind it. Almost the definition. But within this context, right, this is not foolish confidence. This is confidence before God, who knows all things, who is greater than all things, who bestowed a great love upon you so that you could be called a child of God. We have confidence before Him. Verse 22 is one that gets played with a lot. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Whatever we ask. What do you think, Jacob? Probably nine out of ten churches in El Paso just want to do whatever we ask. That, that's the part that they want to isolate. Whatever we ask of Him, we'll receive. Well, there's some conditions to that, aren't there? Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. If our heart doesn't condemn us, if we have confidence before Him, within the broader context of 1 John, if we are abiding in Christ, if we're resting in who we are, and we're doing what He says to do obediently, We do the things that are pleasing in His sight, John says here, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Whatever we ask. Now, that's a tremendous thing, but it is not to be adopted foolishly, right? That is, I mean, you could go off the reservation, off the rails in about two heartbeats if you don't understand the contingencies or the conditions there. It's a, a condition conditioned on whether I am abiding in Christ. What the nature of abiding in Christ is that my, that profoundly affects my prayer life, doesn't it? If I am resting in who I am in Christ, a permanent possession of identity as a child of God, a permanent hope that I will one day be in His presence, and when I'm in His presence and see Him as He truly is, then I will be like Him, John says in this book. I have hope and expectation and joy in the love that Christ has offered me. 
that profoundly affects what I ask for, doesn't it? So, so that's why John can say, whatever we ask, we receive. Because we are asking obediently. We're asking in an abiding way. We're asking things that are pleasing in His sight, things that He rewards, things that are obedient, things that are faithful. So you can't divorce it from the condition that John explains here. It is not simply a carte blanche. You all know that intuitively. Yep. Yeah. You know, you've had unanswered prayers, have you not? Sometimes that's a mercy, right? There's actually some country songs about that, right? Way back from my old days. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, talking about a woman. I won't ask for how many hands you could raise there on that one, guys. How many times you thank God for an unanswered prayer as far as a spouse? Women could say the same thing, perhaps. You know that. But I want you to understand, in order for you not to have a spiritual problem in your life, you don't need to misunderstand this verse. When you ask for something foolish, it is a mercy from God that He doesn't give it to you. Yeah? I mean, you know that. There was uh, one time I was asleep over at my cousin's house, and there were different rules at my cousin's house than there were at my house. Uh, there was no opportunity for this sort of thing at my house, but there was probably a massive punch bowl-sized full thing of sweet tarts. I was only there one night. Me and my cousin ate that entire bowl of sweet tarts and didn't sleep all night. My aunt pronounced a curse upon us. May you be sick, you little sinners, roughly. It was a long time ago. I might still eat a whole bowl of sweet tarts, but I wouldn't expect to survive it, right? You little sinners, right? It was a mercy that we didn't get sick, right? from it. It's a mercy when God doesn't grant you something that you desire foolishly. But if He grants it to you, you should understand that it is a good thing, a positive thing, an indication that we are abiding. And, and truthfully, I think that we don't ask enough frequently. I will say that. You know, I have a, a friend that has, he must have, I, I won't say his name because I didn't ask him, but he must have 10 different cancers. And he has had those cancers for 20 years. But by all rights, by all medical knowledge should have gone to be with the Lord years ago. And he keeps trucking every day, serving the Lord in ways that would make you and I exhausted. But he tells this story about uh, somebody in his church at the time that came in and, and he, I mean, he's got a lot of cancers and a lot of health problems that could take his life at any moment. And he tells a story about this guy that came and prayed for him to 
basically to die peacefully <laughs> in a hospital room. And I'm not sure that he said anything out loud to that gentleman, but he's, you know, he's thinking, get out of here, man. That's not the kind of prayer I want. I want to get better. I got things to do. We shouldn't be afraid to, to pray for what we want, guys, even if it seems audacious, insane. I mean, there's nothing more insane than the person that prays over their Big Mac from McDonald's and says, Lord, please bless this food to our bodies. If you're dumb enough to pray that, you ought to be able to pray for just about anybody to get healed in the hospital. You know? Truthfully. Truthfully. And not be surprised when he answers your audacious prayer. For his abiding child. Loving our brother with deeds and truth, with doing what is pleasing in his sight. Those things create a context and an environment in which we simply are not physically able to pray for something that God's not going to grant to us. Because we're devoted to doing things that are pleasing in his sight. We're abiding. We're resting in who we are. We're doing what He wants us to do, and He's promised to enable that. And it's going to look insane to the world. It's going to look insane to most of the other Christians in the world, I think. But even, even the world kind of understands that, right? Was it, I forget who it was, Albert Einstein? <laughs> Maybe. I, get, I remember a lot of quotes, but sometimes my filing system doesn't work perfectly. So that when you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. You will not find yourself on the side of the majority when you're abiding in Christ and praying audacious prayers with the true, sincere, actual expectation that whatever we ask as abiding believers, we will receive. We can't go wrong there, loving our brothers and loving the Lord that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. Uh, we thank You for the admonition uh, in this Word, in First John especially, that defines Your expectations for our lives here as we, we do engage uh, in this Advent season with love and joy, and hope and expectation of Your coming. Father, we know that we want to be those who are found serving you at the time you call us into your presence. And we thank you for that opportunity and the clear instruction that you've given so that we can, we can do that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Do you know stand with us?
to 